27, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Lee Leisure. She's an associate professor of psychology and the director of the Behavioral Neuroscience Lab at UT Houston. Hi, Lee. University of Houston. Did I say, oh, I'm sorry, University of Houston. We're, 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 we're different. I thought I said UT Houston. Right? Oh, I've written oh, UT Houston, which probably means I said UT Houston. Sorry about that. University of Houston. So her lab looks at the behavioral and environmental factors that influence neuroplasticity and reactive events that occur post-trauma in aging brains. Today, um, we'll start out by talking about her recent work that looks at the neuroprotective effects of exercise on alcohol neurodegeneration. I think we'll just go from there. So um, around the room, we've got Fidel Santamaria. Hi, how are you? And Brian Derrick. Hello. And Todd Troyer. Hello. Carlos Palladini. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. So great big group. And me, I am Salma. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Everybody knows me. So, um, so in looking at, at this, the work that we're going to talk about, two kind of strains fall out of it. Uh, all this work on the interplay between binge alcohol and exercise, and one looks at the behavioral choices of an animal based on relative um, exercise level or alcohol consumption, and the other concerns the underlying neurological changes um, induced by alcohol and exercise, and how they either interact or counteract one another. So one seems more on couch and thinking about motivated behavior and reward, and the other more about neuroprotection and neurodegenerative processes. So I was thinking we could just consider each in turn and maybe consider the intersection if there is one. Okay. Um, so Brian Christie's been here with us before, and he's talked about some of the protective exor- uh, effects of exercise and um, on cell proliferation and survival in, in dentate gyrus. Um, so can you do you want to just say something about that quickly and then tell us why ethanol maybe is bad and um, maybe what some of the best possibilities for interaction between these processes, these two processes are? Okay, so, so to put it in a nutshell, um, binge alcohol consumption is bad for the dentate gyrus and for the hippocampus and surrounding um, cortical areas. Exercise, on the other hand, tends to pump up those areas um, by a number of different mechanisms. Um, by increasing neurogenesis in that area, by adding new blood vessels, um, by increasing neurotrophins. So the, originally that, that work was performed because we, we knew that um, binge alcohol consumption is bad for the brain. And since exercise is good, it was a simple matter of seeing whether could you really pump up the brain and fortify it against the effects of binge alcohol consumption. Could you, could so you say why, something about how we know that binge alcohol... Right, so binge alcohol. Oh, how, how it's bad. Okay, so one thing that it tends to do is kill cells. Um, in the dentate and in um, surrounding cortical areas. And on the other hand, exercise tends to increase the number of newborn neurons in the dentate gyrus. So it was kind of a matter of seeing whether this this one effect that, that we knew exercise had could protect against the uh, future negative effects of alcohol. So if I quit having new neurons in my dentate gyrus at all, what would happen to me? Well, we can kind of answer that by looking at what happens with aging, in which there's a natural decline in the birth of new cells, and we know that it becomes, you know, cognition is impaired, memory is impaired, learning is impaired. So a lot of people would like to extrapolate from that that these new neurons are new memories. Um, Personally, I'm not sure that we can make that direct link, 
but it's certainly tempting. So what is the relationship between age and the and neurogenesis? Uh, does it go completely away at some point? <laughs> Not completely, but it's vastly decreased. You will find cells proliferating. You will find those neuroprogenitor cells proliferating in developing a, a, a neuronal phenotype, but at a far lower level. They're also non-neuronal proliferation. Yes. Right? So yes. what age does that happen? I'm, I'm, I might be partly asking this. Out of my Are you worried? About a year <laughs> for a rat. Uh-huh. Or even, um, it, yeah, it depends on where you put middle age, but some of the work suggests that it's starting to happen in, in quote, middle age, which which would be little even less than a year for yeah. a rat. So, yeah. so if you don't have that happening anymore, then it's okay to drink? <laughs> well, <laughs> it couldn't hurt. A rainbow's kiss couldn't hurt. I heard my rule of thumb. Isn't there also with chemotherapy that screws up marriage? Yes, right? so yes. That's another way to get at what happens. Like big cognitive deficits. Cognitive deficits. Mm-hmm. I was wondering about whether, so you focus on the, the hippocampus and the parahippocampal region, uh, and you mentioned that for both, for both. Al- for both alcohol, the effects of alcohol and the effects of exercise. Is that region particularly sensitive to both? Is there really an overlap, or is there something special about that, or is it just because everybody looks at the hippocampus? Well, okay, so I think it's it, it, it might be that everyone is fixated on the hippocampus. For certain um, neuroscientists are a little too fixated on the hippocampus. But in addition to that, the hippocampus is just a, an area of the brain that is very plastic and therefore very vulnerable to a lot of different processes like aging, like stress. It's You, you see volume loss in that region of the brain in people that are depressed. So there's the, the fixation on it is, is right in that you know it, it is an extremely plastic region. And if you, I guess, if you if you want to be sure of finding an effect, look in the hippocampus. So how do we know that plastic and vulnerable go together? Well, they don't necessarily. In that region, they do. I'm not certain that you, you they would. So always it's just a correlation. Together. Maybe there. Maybe you could be vulnerable and not plastic. Maybe you could be plastic and not vulnerable. I mean, the way you said it made it sound like they were. It's true. The way, the way I said that made it sound that way, but I didn't mean to, to make that connection. It's just that the hippocampus happens to be both highly plastic and highly vulnerable. Uh-huh. So let's get to your work. So you find in your work, why don't you describe it a little bit, just briefly, what do you find the intersection is between exercise and, and, and degeneration, seen from binge alcohol consumption? Are there any protective effects? Yes. So we looked at two, two, two main I guess you could call them lines of effect. One would be, did exercise help protect against binge-induced cell loss in the dentate gyrus and in surrounding cortical regions? And the answer was yes. If, on the other hand, you look at neurogenesis and the birth of new neurons, binge alcohol consumption is, is very bad for neurogenesis. It, you know, it, it decreases the proliferation and survival and neural fate choice of neural progenitor cells. We were hoping that since exercise tends to enhance all of those things, we were hoping that exercise prior to binge would sort of protect the brain from a loss of neurogenesis, and we did not see that. I'm still kind of kind of confused about why binge behavior is so important to your study. Why not look at chronic alcohol? Why not look at, I mean, is that just a better model for what people do in general? Binge can, there's many ways to answer that question, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll stick with Binge alcohol consumption, is the epidemiological research would suggest, is on the rise in the United States, particularly among women um, and young women. And it's also an enormous problem in adolescents. And so that's one place we would like to take um, future studies is into the adolescent brain. 
because adolescents seem to be simultaneously less vulnerable to the intoxicating effects of alcohol, which means they tend to drink more, and more vulnerable to the degenerative effects of alcohol. So they represent a very interesting population. In terms of, of binge, so, you know, it, it is apparently this pattern of drinking is becoming more common in the United States. But in addition to that, just from, from an ease of, of um, experimentation, a four-day binge is a lot easier than a chronic alcohol intake model and also easier to see degenerative, immediate degenerative effects. So we don't know for sure that binge drinking is worse for your hippocampus than chronic drinking because the comparison hasn't really been made. We're looking at binge because it's easier to look at binge. In my case, I'm looking at binge because it's easier to look at binge. However, I'm not certain that one cannot say that binge is better or worse than chronic consumption in terms of its effects on the brain. I'm not actually familiar enough with the research on that to, to answer that. But um, I have one question. So uh, what you have tried is to see if, if uh, a model of exercise, I mean, you, you exercise every day and then the rat goes on the bench for four days or so, uh, and then see if the activity, the previous activity has protected the brain. But what about also combine? Bench drinking with bench exercise uh, with increase, and I'm saying this because um, you can drink a lot and then sweat it off by uh, uh, increase your metabolism. Exercising, right? Ex- ex- exercising, right? Uh, after uh, binging, wouldn't that allow the liver and other parts of the body to? Uh, metabolize more uh, the alcohol that will remain because it seems that it remains from I mean you're, you're injecting you're providing um, methanol to these rats for several days uh, so it just accumulates right these animals are not doing exercise during those four Correct. days uh, but what if if you uh, uh, provide them with a motivation to do more exercise during those days well, so Fidel sorry but I have to ask about an assumption uh, exercise is going to change the liver function? I just don't know about it. Sorry, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm hypothesizing. I don't know anything outside the brain. <laughs> so our, con- actually, we did a control experiment. Cause that was our first thought. Exercise is enhancing hepatic metabolism. And we didn't find that to be the case. But what, what I wanted to get at was the fact that, so humans that are binge drinking are pretty highly intoxicated and probably not capable of exercising almost they're doing it maybe lying on the floor and flailing and the rats certainly also were too intoxicated mm. to be um, aerobically exercising so it wouldn't be a good model for the testers um i i no. Mm-hmm. and i'm wondering I, if humans would actually ever in, would ever do that you know like like binge and then while still intoxicated yeah. exercise <laughs> But, but actually, well, uh, Fidel's experiment is almost the temporal reverse of your regular yes. experiment, right? Yeah. So you exercise and then drink. So if you did the exact same experiment, but in reverse order, drink yeah. and then exercise, I mean, of course, you might think, well, there isn't going to be any difference because both things have happened, but maybe there could be an order effect. Right. 
And I would wonder if, if after you've, you know, especially if you repeated the binge, if after you have laid waste to the brain, is there going to be the motivation to exercise? So I would actually like to do that experiment, mm-hmm. expose animals to repeated binge and see if they're w- even willing to exercise. Mm-hmm. Before we get too deep into behavior, I wanted to ask you, though, cell death happens all over the brain, not just in the hippocampus. This goes back to the why is hippocampus special question. So did I see somewhere that when you looked at the rates of cell death in exercising bingers versus non-exercising bingers, that you actually did see the same amount of cell death in areas outside the entorhinal cortex and DG. Is that right? We, we only looked at entorhinal um, DG and perirhinal um, and then at the granule cell layer. So we don't know if the rates of cell death are changed elsewhere. We, yes, we didn't look at, at other areas of the brain. Do we have any idea how it is that ethanol affects neurogenesis or cell death, and what the the pathway, chemical pathways, or whatever are that are responsible for that? I am quite certain that there are people who know the answer to that question. Admittedly, I do not. Well, I think <laughs> if you want to know the yeah, answer, sure. you can cut this out. Uh, it turns out that uh, immature neurons—it's a mystery—but uh, immature neurons respond very well to GABA. And when they're mature, because of the chloride concentration internally, GABA is depolarizing. So that may be the one Could thing be excitotoxic. That's where the plasticity and vulnerability comes in, excitotoxicity. Because really, I mean, the plasticity, disease states are really a common process gone awry, either too much or too little. And, and enhanced plasticity is epilepsy, and too little plasticity, you get caught in deficits. So, so that's the excitotoxicity is where I see that. What's your sure about that? Uh, but yeah, what do you Whatever. think, Carlos? I, I, I just don't buy the uh, I just don't buy the the concept that that a disease state is just a normal state. Oh no, in, 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 in some extreme form. Yeah, but it's, sometimes it happens. Like for instance, epilepsy is is just plastic mechanisms that have gotten out of control by yeah. trauma or whatnot. But related to that. If, I'm wondering if animals. I'm just fascinated by the fact that people who exercise more drink more, and I think there's a hidden maybe, independent variable. Maybe, maybe there's a hidden independent variable in there. Maybe they're more social. Uh, maybe they're more interested in singles bars. I don't know. Um, but what what I'm interested in now is is that there seems to be an interaction between exercise and alcohol, and I'm wondering if exercise itself is rewarding. And I thought you would be able to answer that, Carlos. So. Uh, yeah, exercise is rewarding. People get addicted to that, that's for sure. And so is alcohol. Um, but it seems like the, the way, the, way um, the experiments were, were shown today in, in the seminar were, we weren't really comparing a reward situation with a reward situation. So on one hand, they had animals exercising, which could be rewarding in of itself because they were doing it voluntarily. But then, for the alcohol, they were just basically being gavaged or something like that. They were just being, for, the, for the binge, they for were. The binge, they were just being injected with alcohol. So if anything, that is certainly not rewarding. Right. And, and um, uh, but that could introduce yet another confound. Of course, now you're you're, you're doing a rewarding situation versus a very un, a, you know a, a punishing situation, a, a noxious um, stimulus, which could also induce neurogenesis. Right. So um, it's 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 but, you know, but of course it's difficult to get. Like you said, rats to binge drink voluntarily. So, but they will, and that was what the P rats will do. So yeah, the so second the experiment. So let's talk about the second experiment. Can you yeah. just set that? Mind us what the experiment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so one of the one of the interesting findings that we had from the study in which animals exercised and then and then were binged um, 
was that the animals that had exercised acted less intoxicated. And so this is why we did the control experiment that I mentioned to make sure that exercisers weren't just processing alcohol faster, and that was why they acted less intoxicated. So we found with that control experiment that, that they weren't just metabolizing it faster, which made me wonder, were exercisers somehow less vulnerable to the intoxicating effects of alcohol, and would they therefore drink more? And so we wanted to look at that in a model of voluntary consumption, um, hence the P-RAT study. Uh, and P-RATs are rats bred to prefer alcohol. The P is for preferring. And so we had them run for two weeks and then offered them the opportunity to drink alcohol. And, and they had that opportunity to drink alcohol for three weeks. And during the first week of alcohol access, um, the P-RATs that had exercised drank significantly more. They didn't weigh a different amount, right? They did not weigh a different amount. Um, you mean after the exercise or during uh, the alcohol? I was just thinking that after the exercise, they got the exercise ones got bigger and so could drink more. Or more able to keep themselves <laughs> up, you know, in your measures of uh, intoxication. They weren't. So this is actually an important point. The pee rats were not drinking to intoxication. They were. They. Um, you can, um, if you do multiple scheduled access, get them to drink to intoxication, but they weren't. So it wasn't that they were so drunk they uh -huh. couldn't figure out which nozzle to drink out of and therefore drank the alcohol. So do you have a, with these uh, exercise paradigms, is there a difference in time scale between a lot of the other physiological changes and the neuroprotective changes in the sense that if you only exercise for a couple weeks, I don't know if you're going to get in great shape or the cardiovascular and all that kind of those kind of uh, improvements. Are they? Are, is that enough time for them? Is the yes. neural? So it just looking at the stroke literature, for uh -huh. example, where they, they look at exercise neuroprotection against later ischemia, yes, a week, two weeks is enough to cause this increase in neurogenesis, cause the increase in angiogenesis, um, the, these mechanisms by which you could protect the brain against stroke. So it doesn't take very long to ramp up some of these things. So uh, related, related to that is um, also a question was asked earlier in the, in the seminar, which the audience doesn't know about, but the question was asked, well, are there any differences in caloric intake yes. between the animals? Fidel actually asked that. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's sort of related. So I wanted to ask, uh, but that was in comparison with an animal, two groups of animals. One binge drank and the other well, one drank when the other one didn't drink. Both of them went through exercise. Mm -hmm. But within the group that exercised and also drank, among could you separate out different populations or do some kind of um, correlation between animals that exercise more within that group? Were they also the animals that drank more? In the, within, within we tried those correlations and we didn't see anything. I should emphasize so this is this is pilot data. This were ends yeah. of five per group, so um, we didn't come up with any significant correlations. Adding you know more n might. Yeah, that, that would be great because it would uh, virtually eliminate all these other kinds of questions. I was really hoping that we would see a correlation between distance run and alcohol intake. So when, when Brian was here, he talked. Brian Christie was here. He talked a little bit about how just this whole the idea of angiogenesis and, and increased access, vascular access to DG because it's very vascularized. That that sort of gives you more access to neurotrophins and whatever neuroprotective types of things you would potentially need. I mean, by that token, though, wouldn't you have more access to ethanol? To, yeah, to, I was just going to say, I think I know where you're going with this. Yes, in theory, you would. <laughs> so what you're saying is that the less vasculature you have in, the, in certain areas of the brain, 
will correlate with animals that will drink less and vice versa, or will easier get drunk or addicted to No, well, I mean, well, in terms of the... Because they get delivered the shot. More of that. I I was just thinking in terms of... Remember this discussion that we had where... uh, Exercise induces angiogenesis, and angiogenesis... Would allow, if I'm following, it would allow greater access of alcohol. Yeah. Well, you forget about that without so exercise, right? People right. that have more vasculature right. will have a faster delivery of the more drug, of any drug, and, then and will that correlate with uh, addicted people? I mean, you can right. test this by, I mean, people have the data now, I'm pretty sure, for any of these drugs in, a, in a PET scans, right? You have the, uh, the, the vasculature, the density of blood vessels, and then you know how fast these people get addicted or they get high. Well, you can correlate that with the the volume occupied by blood vessels in (coughs) different parts of the brain. Well, certainly the amount of drug that reaches the brain uh, after administration, how big that is, is really important in addictive liabilities. Well, it's a density, right? I mean, the, the, the amount, if the liver is doing the same thing, right, eventually that uh, drug is going to be delivered to the to the brain, and it is how fast it's going to be delivered. Right. Well, there's a lot of details. So there's a routes of administration. For oh, the we don't we don't care about that. Yeah. But <laughs> the thing is, is if you get if you get more of the drug into the brain, uh, it, the potential for addiction is is more drug faster into the brain. Uh-huh. It, so it's it, the time course rather than the peak value. Right. It's like crack versus snorted cocaine. Snorted cocaine is addictive, but. Crack cocaine tends to have a higher addictive liability because of this. So that's interesting. That's right because like injected morphine is is worse than than opium. Uh, why though? Do we know that? Do we know why the onset, the rate of onset, is important for addiction? I think it's just the high. How much high you get? But the high is like yeah. The but I mean, I mean, I was thinking about a biological. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I was <laughs> number of receptors occupied. I would imagine a number of synapses affected. Because I was thinking maybe in in uh, in sort of Carlos's way of of thinking about addiction that maybe it has to do with the time between the act and the and the reward. So learning something. Uh, is better if the time between the behavior and the reward is sh- is short, uh-huh. and gets worse as the time between the act and the reward for the act gets longer. Is it is it like that? I mean, how long? What's the timing? Well, like? In terms of a reward prediction error, that is true, right? But I don't know, and I don't think it is known if that correlates with the kinetics of the drugs and how fast they get to the brain. But it certainly makes sense. Um, I just don't know. I don't. I don't think it's been looked at. But you're right. Any drug that has faster delivery to the brain is, is always more addictive. It was my understanding that, that was why methamphetamine was so bad. Was adding that methyl group actually yeah. made yeah. it cross just that much faster. Yeah. So you well, can like plot yeah. the different drugs by how fast by their kinetics of delivery, mm-hmm. and then uh, I've never actually seen of, that graph. Uh, but I would just. But, uh, yeah. well, I, sort of I mean, if you're saying that, I'm, yeah, I'm sure artificial you opiates were originally introduced yeah. uh, because they it was hoped that they would be non-addictive compared to the natural opiates. They turned out to be more addictive. The the uh, uh, injection delivery by injection was introduced in the hope that it, that would make it not addictive because they were thinking that something maybe about the about the, the digestive action, right? system and all that kind it's of like stuff. Cold. There was a kind of um, 
a view of of uh, uh, you know the James Lang view of of uh, need, of need and mm-hmm, uh, yeah. and reward has something to do with the peripheral nervous system. So bypass the peripheral nervous system, <laughs> and that won't be addictive anymore. And that did not work out. Apparently. And uh, and all of that had to do with the rate of onset. So it's really. A, this is really a robust phenomenon. Mm. I mean, oh, yeah. I've never mm. heard anybody mm. begin to give an explanation for it. It's, it's happening again with another drug. Um, I, I was reading the DEA uh, report on this, in morbidity and mortality weekly. But there's this over-the-counter, you can buy it here. I've seen it in stores that, you know, Quickie Mars. Uh, it's, they come under various names, but it's a synthetic opi- uh, marijuana, cannabinoid, cannabinoid-like substance in these compounds. And like, uh, is that <laughs> no, it's not salvia. It's I know what you're talking oh, about. So it's something it? different. It's called Kush uh, uh, Space. I you can see them at the store. Huh. But uh, what's the active ingredient? Spice. It's uh, uh, Win 187. Uh-huh. It's a, it's a oh. synthetic cannabinoid-like okay. compound. Uh-huh. Problem is, is that the people they've stopped. You know, the DEA banned it in December 25th. I think it was, and all of a sudden these people are showing up in rehab. Because they weren't able to stop taking the drug. They'd get this high, cannabinoid high, that was gone within 90 minutes, and they'd self-administer it again. And after doing that repeatedly for several months, they just couldn't stop. And there was some, they said, a craving that they've never experienced before. So that's a creepy finding. And was it selective for the cannabinoid system? I I don't know. The article is just a lot of people who are using this stuff that you can buy anywhere. And it's also less addictive than marijuana. And they're suggesting that the number of other cannabinoids that produces sustained sort of soporific effect sort of limits the self-administration of normal cannabis. Hmm. But that's a tangent. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's something I brought to class. So in terms of drugs of abuse, would you expect to see these kinds of things using other drugs of abuse? Well, okay, so that's, that's a really good question because the when, when we started this experiment to see whether exercising pea rats would drink more alcohol, I thought they would actually drink less because the rodent studies of exercise and drugs of abuse almost, in fact, across the board show that when animals exercise and then have the opportunity, for example, to self-administer cocaine, that it's less rewarding. They take in less. So is alcohol different? You know, are, are my results wrong? Is alcohol different? What is going on here? But those are in studies where they're doing both simultaneously. It's not that one replaces the other as a some means of, them, of Some of them actually do give exercise and then separate the two so that they're not concurrently available. And, and they do seem to... to, to Intake less drugs, so it's uh, it's. This is in one of these measuring the rewarding value of a drug experiments, like one of those progressive uh, ratio reinforcement. It would have Correct. to be, yeah. It would either have to be a progressive ratio or because those things measure something slightly different. I mean, yeah. that measures how much of this drug do you need to take in order to to detect that you've taken it and to get the rewarding effect of it. So, if you did have a big increase in access of the drug to the brain, you might expect animals to take less. Yeah. Sensitizing, sort of. So like, well, on, a, on a fixed ratio, the actual response, um, uh, the, the response uh, with increasing concentrations or increasing access or increasing amount of whatever drug it is, is actually an inverted U-shaped. So you can think about it, if it were cocaine, the more cocaine you get per injection, maybe you just don't need that many injections after, after it becomes quite a bit. That's what Charlie mentioned, the progressive ratio. 
it's kind of like expanding the uh, raising leg of that inverted U shape to almost to infinity, so that with every injection you have to uh, uh, press a lever, perform whatever task that many more times to get the subsequent injection. And so um, that, at least, increase in response rate seems to correlate better with actually an increase in reward value, whatever you want to define that as. Or you could use like a condition place preference. People seem to accept that as, as a measure of reward as well. So if they take less in that kind of experiment, you say it has become more rewarding. It's kind of almost opposite of the interpretation that you are putting on it, I think. Yeah. Uh, getting more bang for your they, they now they take less of the drug of abuse because it's become more, more rewarding after exercise, would be another way of saying it. If that was the kind of experiment that was done. Yeah. It's kind know. of touchy, you know, the way, that, the way you measure the desire of an animal to take some drug, what you're measuring is quite a complicated thing. <laughs> Measuring desire is difficult. That's right. <laughs> well, but this, I think, like, for cocaine and these hard drugs, the, the rats will press forever, right? If you keep increasing the number of... No, so what they have is there's, there's a break point. They stop it. They stop at some point. Mm-hmm. And so then if you can, if you increase the, mm-hmm. the concentration of cocaine per injection, then that break point increases. So they'll press more. They'll work more. For a more rewarding drug. And we're making the assumption that higher concentration or a larger amount of cocaine is more rewarding. So, so your study is one of the first to look at alcohol um, neuropathology in female rats, which I guess was a risky move from a review standpoint. So first, what do we know about sex-specific binging behavior? You kind of talked about that. And is there a literature, Carl or Charlie or any of you, on um, sexual dimorphism and reward-seeking behaviors? Does anybody look at that? I don't know. Which do we want to tackle first? Yeah. <laughs> Female binging. Female. Oh, I'm, I'm more familiar with the, with the literature on um, adolescence, and the trend is for girls to actually be taking in more alcohol than their age-matched male peers. So there's kind of a disturbing trend, um, at least in the United States, for, for girls to be drinking more. So I think more studies on done in female uh, rodents is actually a good thing. Um, in terms of the sexual dimorphism and the reward pathway, I would... Or an exercise. I mean, or this is sort of, you're kind of, I'm just interested in why you chose to look at female rats specifically here. Just because the females are more willing to run. And I was thinking that if we want to get a nice neuroprotective effect, we really want runners. We don't want these rats that get in the wheel and go 500 meters a day. So um, females are generally a lot more willing to, to run appreciable distances. And that's the only reason we ended up doing it that way. We kind of accidentally stumbled on something. But we don't know if the experiment was done on male rats. So there is a big literature on male rats, but, but not for this particular thing. And so we don't know whether it would have worked. Correct. And we're way. about to try it in males, so uh-huh. we'll find out. Can you, get, can you get them to run for reward? Oh, males will run. It's not that males won't run. I didn't mean to, to imply that. It's just no, that no, females but, run better. Well, I know, but you would get them maybe to run a lot if, you're, if it's rewarded. Can you make them run? You can make you them can like the alcohol thing. You just put them in there and well, start spinning the wheel, them and they've got to run. There's two, but you could also reward them for uh, for, for running. But why worry about that? Because, because it, well, it's I mean, you may be able to, you may be able to get larger effects. But larger that's, larger that's, that's not necessarily so, true. Maybe in males, because 
That's why I was asking. There's also a difference between voluntary and involuntary exercise in the physiological effects. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't force them because if if what we're really tapping into here is something to do with the reward system, I'm highly skeptical of whether or not forced exercise is. See, this wouldn't be not necessarily forced exercise; it'd be rewarded exercise. But forced exercise would be an interesting control too. Certainly, like to know is it just getting the exercise? Because it may be rewarded exercise. The reason they don't run is the animals that don't run very much don't feel much reward, and the animals that do, do. And so, yeah, you add another complication by adding your own reward, but you may be able to saturate that and actually control it better because you can reward them uh, a certain amount, and that would maybe swamp the differences, the natural differences on how much reward. I mean, it's all it's all complicated in terms of... Uh, you know, motivated because you're also dealing with the motivation to, to run, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you don't get the benefits of the exercise if it's not motivated or if it's not rewarding. No, so, uh, so it's that will never help me if that's <laughs> well, yeah, that and that was the reason that I ended up looking at this this very question, <laughs> the difference between forced and voluntary exercise, because I started training for a marathon and when I was running six miles a day, I felt like a million bucks. When we got above six miles, I felt horrible and I hated to run and I didn't feel good anymore. And I started wondering, well, if you force animals to run on a treadmill. What does that mean? What's the difference between forced exercise and voluntary exercise? So I wanted to look at the two in in neurogenesis, and both will elevate neurogenesis. But I'm not sure that that that, necessarily relates to the reward or not. So my concern with a study of of exercise and alcohol intake would be if if the exercise isn't rewarding, will that prime them to, to want alcohol or not? I see. So people who exercise and don't like it might drink even more. Your neurogenesis, all of that stuff is fine. If you force yourself to run, you're okay. Yeah, it's I just know. that you might be unhappy a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might have negative affect and stay around the, the edge of an open field. So my forced exercisers were less likely to go into the center of the open field. So. Oh, that explains a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so thank you, Lee Leisure. Oh, well, you no, can edit this, this Okay, question. go ahead. You already ruined Because it. I have a... a, a <laughs> you present... I mean, and I think... You, you definitely you can edit this one out, but... No, we're, we're not. not that, you because you said that, that I'm not. not. We're not editing anymore. We don't have time. Oh, okay. That's okay. But I can ask this question then. It's, it seems that in the field, they say, well, if you do exercise, then you choose healthier... Behavior and then they say alcohol is a non-healthy behavior. Given that evolutionarily every single culture in on Earth has come up with a way of intoxication, and there is evidence for a lot of different animals, mammals, that will seek for specific fruits that will intoxicate them slightly. Are there is there any evolutionary benefit for the intake of alcohol? Oh, that wasn't the question I That's thought you were going to ask. Awesome. That's a very good <laughs> round of applause. That's a good one. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen a single study of that. You could, okay, I can think of two possible answers to that. One would be yes, because moderate amounts of alcohol seem to be good for the cardiovascular system. And on the other hand, you could say no, because especially when you think about animals that, that you know, birds that, that are eating um, rotten berries and they get a little drunk and then that leaves you vulnerable to predators. So. 
So I, I could think of an answer in both directions on that one. But the study that, that I mentioned um, during my talk, which basically was, was an epidemiological study in, in which they drew a correlation between number of minutes spent exercising and number of drinks. What you have to realize is that the, the authors of that study kind of boxed people into three categories, light, medium, and, and heavy drinkers. Um, and so it may be that there's an evolutionary advantage to, to drinking a small amount of alcohol, but not a lot. And if their study is correct, then it would say that the more you exercise, the more you're going to drink, and you, maybe you're getting you, into the too you much. You shift the curve to the right, Yeah. right? Uh-huh. So it's it's good to drink. It's just a question of how much is the issue. Oh yeah, no, no, no I agree with this. It's just like it's the same thing is true. Drugs of Same thing is true of exercise. A little bit of it is okay. Too much of it is not that great. Mm-hmm. Smoking okay. did not right. Smoking, smoking did not evolve in every culture. Right. This smoking is a relatively new uh, vice, but alcohol is everywhere in every single culture, as far as I know. Helps perpetuate the species. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, how, how many of us would flu middle age without alcohol? <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe it helps you deal with uh, stress. pain, stress, yeah. or it, it, all the stress of being uh, chased. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant something yeah. else. <laughs> <laughs> chasing. Yeah, that chasing really wears me out. No, no, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> except for all the living houses, a lot of the animals are under a lot of stress every day, right? Because there's a lion out there, right? Uh, it's, or monkeys chase monkeys, right? And it's on a daily basis, even at night. So uh, maybe this helps them cope with that reality. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to get too psychological because um, we're mechanistic, but, but uh, that really reduces the stress on muscles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And while, by the, uh, reducing the stress on muscles, that becomes a brain state, right? Like every uh, a body state is a mental state. Right. Okay. Fidel's comments were sponsored by Budweiser. <laughs> 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 responsible is what he's trying to tell us. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Lee Leisure, for joining us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Show. Mm-hmm.